Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Hello and welcome to Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service design practitioner and trainer based in Dublin City, Ireland. Now I caught up with one of my favourite authors and design researchers recently, Kim Goodwin. And many of you will be familiar with her work, but for those of you who are not, Kim's written some fantastic articles and wrote the design library staple, How to Create Human-Centred Products and Services, a book that if you haven't picked a copy up of, it's still really, really relevant today, 10 years later. And we discussed the world of extending design systems within organisations to decision systems to help steer the organisations towards more human-centredness. Now, we acknowledge how design systems are excellent tools to help organisations create, but they are lacking the critical piece of self-awareness where they can still obviously be used to create products and services that harm. To want of a better description, the design system is the components of the body, where the decision system is not just the brain, but the consciousness or even the soul. At times in the episode, you may hear some squawking birds in the distance as I'm building a podcast studio up in my home attic at the moment. It's been pretty hot in Ireland recently, so the windows were open and we were heckled a few times from some of Ireland's most finest gull herrings. Now, towards the end of the episode, I selected a bunch of questions from the This Is H City Slack channel and pitched them to Kim, which was lots of fun. But anyway, let's jump straight into the episode. Kim Goodwin, a very warm welcome to Bring Design Closer. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm delighted to have you here. Um, So let's kick off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are and what you do. Let's see. I've been in the design and product space for 20 plus years. You don't need to know how many plus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Doing a variety of things, lots of healthcare, mostly consulting, definitely some in-house as well. And outside of work, I like to lift heavy things and photograph wildlife and cook, all that stuff. Yeah, all the fun stuff, all the stuff that's meaningful in life. And uh, we're going to chat a little bit more today. Um, we've been back and forth for a while about uh, organizational structures and design systems and decision systems. So tell us a little bit more. I know you did a great talk as well in, in IXDA in Buenos Aires earlier this year. But let's start off. What's the relationship between a design system and a decision system? The genesis of that term actually is a conference organizer said, hey, Kim, come do a talk for us on design systems. And I said, well, I could talk about that, but (laughs) I would actually rather talk about enabling what I think is a much bigger issue. And it is actually a systematic approach that I'm talking about. The design system addresses, in most cases, a fairly superficial aspect of the user experience, right? Color, type sometimes content, you know, layout patterns, interaction patterns, even so that's all still the surface of the user experience when our actual experience with a company or an organization goes so much deeper than that, right? There are a million decisions that get made by lots of people who are not us and never will be about terms of service, revenue models, pricing, customer support, security policies, you name it, engineering performance, all of those things affect the user experience. And the yeah. thing that we do, if we're doing our jobs right, I think, is we encourage organizations to be more human-centered. So to be perfectly honest, 
I've stopped even talking about that word design because we all get so wrapped up in what it means and who's allowed to use it and who cares. What I'm about is, can we get organizations to make more humane decisions at every level across every discipline? And then after that, they learn to value what we do as designers. What do you think it is about design systems that's so appealing to organizations? There's a lot to like about design systems. I think that they are very concrete. They give you gains in efficiency, which if you're an organization that values efficiency, not all do, uh, is Mm. appealing. It makes decisions simpler. So if you have an organization that tends toward, say, hierarchical decision-making, design systems feel really good. They feel repeatable, reusable, because they are. And they, yeah. they make designers and developers' lives easier if you have an organization of sufficient scale to support one. So I love design systems. I think they're worth doing. The, the only comment I want to make is that if you're spending two or three full-time people on a design system and you're not spending at least that much time thinking about how do you help the rest of the organization make more human-centered decisions? Is that really the highest value investment? My product yeah. manager background says, mm, no. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's the organizational appetite for this, the new shiny thing, I guess. it's. And at the moment, I don't mean to bag on design systems. They've literally just arrived in the room. And I have to be aware that myself and Kim are sitting in a room kind of going, oh, here they are, design systems. We're sick of them already. But I don't think that's the case. I think there's this huge benefit in design systems. But I think you're right. There is a gap there between understanding the North Star and what it is where the organization is trying to achieve by implementing them. And how are you doing that? Like, how do you bring organizations on that journey to bring them back to the centered position of why they're doing these things, the purpose? Yeah, I think how you go about it really depends on your starting point, right? As a consultant, if somebody calls me up and says, hey, help me with this, I have a pretty easy entry point, and it's usually at an executive level. And if you're Mm. in-house, that's usually not, going to be your starting point, right? You have to start small. If you look into the change management literature, there's a, a guy named John Cotter, a uh, professor at Harvard, who talks about one of the key components of leading change is building a coalition. What you have to do to begin is build a local coalition, right? Your immediate product team, your engineering leads, your product leads, all of those folks, you have to get them aligned around how we make decisions more broadly about at least our product in our local area of control. And then as you, as you start to see that working and they start to see that working and start to evangelize it, you can, you can branch out a bit bigger. Now, once in a while, you'll have a, what I call a teachable moment in an organization where something bad happens in the market. You know, the, the FDA recalls your medical product because it killed people or hopefully not yeah. severe. You know, you get beat up in the market a little bit. And then sometimes you have executive attention and you have an opportunity to say, oh, here's a way we could have gone about this differently. Here's a way in which we have some tools to help people make better decisions. Yeah. I think the design system thing is easy for people to grasp, especially in, in design teams and also executive teams. Once they get it, they get it like, you know, okay, cool. So it's kind of like Lego bricks, you know, it standardizes the elements it allows you to work quicker, work faster. But my thing is it can also work allow you to work quicker and faster in the wrong direction. Yeah. And um, that's the critical piece that I think we're both speaking about the same thing here. But what does a decision framework look like? Yeah. And I think that it's important that we do have decision-making systems that reduce the friction, right? Uh, just as design systems do for those front-end choices. And so I think the framework starts with a set of values 
And I think that the values we hope that we all have as designers are that it's about doing no harm to humans, right? But I think that we don't even necessarily have a shared definition of what human-centered even means. You know, we talk about human-centered design, but does that mean accessible? Does that mean learnable? What, What does that mean? And so this is where I find it helpful to turn to certain models of self-actualization, right? So yes, a bit problematic, but start with Maslow, which is one everybody's usually familiar with. Yeah, People rightly criticize Maslow as being very sort of Western and individualist, which it is. But, you know, Maslow posits that until you have needs around food and shelter and safety and things like that met, you know, you're not going to self-actualize and and meet your full potential as a human, right? So Native American scholars rightly criticize that as as too individualist, that the goal of self-actualization is actually community actualization. You know, how do we grow and thrive as a community, which I like that framing much better. And, you know, it's also not really a hierarchy exactly. The needs aren't quite sequential. You know how these models always oversimplify. But to my mind, if we think about human-centered design, what it does is we're going to help somebody get closer to self-actualization hmm. without moving other people farther away from self-actualization. And exactly. I think that second part is really the key. If you look at even some of the Silicon Valley business models, right? Yeah, I find it really convenient to hop in an Uber, but how is Uber treating that driver? You know, yeah. are they actually being manipulated in a way that makes them more money? Okay, maybe. Are they being manipulated in a way that makes Uber more money and them less money? Mm, not okay. So, That's what I'm talking about when I say we need that just as a a baseline before we even get into how we make decisions. So just let's take a a situation. You do get a phone call, you do go into an organization and you're there to help them, I guess, design better. It might be your your brief, like to become more human-centered, so to speak. And I guess you arrive at a shared common language and a definition of what human-centered means to both you and to the organization. What next well, then, then I think we need to look at how the decisions get made and what are the criteria we use to evaluate our, our decisions. And one that I find is really interesting and I think is applicable to us in the tech space is the Nuremberg Code. Yeah. And it's a bit of a heavy topic, right? But yeah, it's great though. For anybody who's not familiar with it, right? This arose out of the Nuremberg hearings after Nazi doctors were doing horrible experiments on people and the world, yeah. oh, I guess not everything is okay in the name of science, is it? And so if you've ever done any human subjects research or any medical research, you get familiar with this idea that it's about minimizing harm, it's about informed consent, it's about having plans to mitigate any harm that does happen and making sure that you have the resources to do that. And if you do any research in these areas, you're subject to an independent review board that ensures that this happens. So I think that this is an interesting framework for us on two levels. One, I think independent review boards are a great model for us to consider in tech. And frankly, are a model I think ought to be regulated into how we work. When you think Mm. about the kinds of harm that we can do to people's privacy, their well-being, you know, literally their mental health. There's lots of evidence that people's mental health is being damaged by too much time online. So all of these things tell me we need to be governed in some way. But even in the absence of that structure, I think we can all at least ask ourselves the questions in the Nuremberg Code. Is Mm. this actually of benefit to the population that we're talking about? Is this the least harmful way to accomplish the goal? What are the risks and do we have plans for mitigating them? And most important, do we have truly informed consent? Yeah, 
I mean, I've spent time in several organizations. I lived in Australia and I've been back in Ireland for a while. And I go into organizations and I see, you know, the big posters on the wall and the, the values and, you know, people first and uh, all these kind of things on the wall. And then you go in and you have some meetings with, you know, the teams and stuff. And sure enough, the designers might have some questions and some real concerns about the direction that things are going in, but yet the business trumps them. Yeah. So it's kind of hard. And it's that, that kind of gray area, that murky water where designers, for the best part, I think, you know, the ones that I've definitely experienced and worked with, they get, you know, doing good and, you know, they have a human centeredness. But when it, it sort of spells into, into other areas of the business, how can we work better with those areas to make sure that that type of framework exists beyond the design world? Two things. One is I, I can't necessarily agree that, that designers are naturally more human centered. I think <laughs> just I know Mike Montero would kill me for saying that. <laughs> I think we're just as subject to deluding <laughs> ourselves into thinking that something is good for users because it is going to help us meet that metric that we're being evaluated on. Yeah. And you're also getting at the third component of decision systems, which is values. The way that organizations use values, I think, is mostly ineffective, right? Because you do have those posters on the wall that say people first. Well, what the heck do you do with people first? Because you and I are going to interpret that in different ways. And Mm -hmm. so it's important to have some overarching values articulated, but you also have to articulate values in a much more granular way at the level of every single team and help them translate that into actionable ideas. So one of the things that if you study organizational change, you'll find is true is people don't actually know what to do with change messages unless they come from their immediate manager or at most their manager's manager. And the reason for that is because the senior executives can't talk in enough detail to help people understand, oh, here's what that means for how I behave and how I make decisions. So, Mm. you know, one example is I work in healthcare a lot. Lots of organizations put, say, patients first. What yeah. does that mean, right? <laughs> so first step is you have to break that down. And user interviews actually give you some great fodder for breaking down what patients first means, right? What do patients mm. think patients first means? Well, for example, if you talk to patients, one of the things that they will say is, I feel in control of my healthcare. So let's say that's one of the sub-principles of patients first as a value, right? That's one of our principles. But then you have to break that down further. So if you're talking to the facilities team, for example, the people who buy furniture and set up the rooms and so on, what does yeah. what feeling in control mean? Well, it might mean that I get to sit in a normal chair and talk to the doctor in a normal chair. And there's not this weird physical position of hierarchy where, you know, they're just clearly in a position of physical dominance, right? So that might be one example. So, you know, seat patients and physicians as peers. That could be a team level principle you could break that down into. And then you would have different principles like like that for each different part of the organization so that they can see, oh, here's a thing I can actually translate into the decisions I make. So, Kim, I want to ask you a question about the role of metrics and goals and values. How do you feel they're interrelated? The things that we value are the things that we measure. And Mm. the things that we measure tend to be the things that we value. So if a company tells you people first is their value, do they measure that in any meaningful way? If not, it's not a real value. It's just marketing, right? So this is the problem. A lot of teams, a lot of organizations will drive to a single business metric 
So take social media, for example, that engagement number, the more you get people coming back, the more ads you can put in front of them, the, mm. you know, the more that drives your revenue. But the problem is, think about how you make decisions in real life. Do you ever optimize to a single metric in life? I certainly don't. I would like to maximize my fitness. But if I only think about that, I'm going to spend all my time at the gym. I'm never going to eat chocolate, which would be a huge bummer. And I'm not going to see my family and friends. And yeah. so in real life, the way that I make decisions is I say, I would like to optimize my fitness without sacrificing certain other things too much. And we mm. don't have that sort of balance concept in the way that we use metrics most of the time in business, right? We don't say we want to optimize this engagement metric without sacrificing X, Y, or Z, right? Without sacrificing functioning democracy and how people feel about themselves and all of these other things that we know are so important to the human experience. So how do we come up with a counterpoint metric? So yeah. here's the way I frame it, which is we want a metric that describes our business goal, the thing we want to accomplish, right? And if we articulate the goal as we want to optimize revenue, well, gosh, that maybe opens us up to business models other than advertising. So yeah. that lets us be more creative if we don't zero in on the metric first, but we start with the goal, then the metric. Yeah. Second piece is we need to say, how do we measure our values as well as those goals? Because we need to see if we're hitting those values too hard. And there's always a balance point. It's not going to be perfect, but... Part of why I think people don't measure values today is you can't just measure those things with click-throughs, right? Mm. If you want to understand the impact you're having on somebody's life, you have to ask them. So this is a, it's a good area because one of the things that I have on my mind is, uh, is a situation in an organization where teams are working on things that uh, if you ask one set of customers, that they might kind of go, that's really cool. And then another one might kind of go, well, actually, that's kind of bad. Mm -hmm. And the design team know intrinsically that this is something that's not truly human centered mm -hmm. and you're getting mixed messages and it's not connecting with the organizational values. Yeah. It's very hard when, when you, especially when you've got business buy-in and executive buy-in into these initiatives yeah. to push back. Yep. Yeah. And the thing is that if we try to have that argument, and I hope that we are, although it's difficult, you have to be a bit gutsy to have that argument. Well, I think when we try to have that argument based on our inner sense that something's not right, then that doesn't carry a whole lot of weight against a thing that you can concretely measure, right? So yeah. the way that I frame it is that until we're, we figure out how to measure the things that we value, we're going to overvalue what's easy to measure. And I think that's what organizations are doing now. Yeah. And the ones that are trying to measure the human side are mostly doing it poorly, right? Every once in a while... I haven't given up on Facebook because I have too many, you know, non-techie friends on there. But every once in a while, Facebook says, hey, Kim, do you believe Facebook cares about you? Come and on. And I just want to slap my, my phone at that moment because that's a question that's about Facebook. It's not yeah. about me. It's about, yeah. are, are you perceiving our brand well? Instead, it should be saying something more like, hey, Kim, after you used Facebook today, did you feel better or worse about yourself? Did you feel closer or more alienated from the people in your life? Right. Exactly. Those are questions that are actually meaningful that that measure the impact of what Facebook is doing overall. Right. And it's not about them. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I remember the the reason why I used to work at MySpace back in the day. And whenever Facebook came along, I, I got completely bought into the Zuckerberg spiel of, you know, making the world a better and more connected place. And that is a sort of a marketing approach, you know, definitely hooked a lot of people in it, myself included. But I don't feel that they've ever measured that. I never felt more connected. I lived in Australia and a lot of my friends were in in Ireland. I never felt more connected to them by using Facebook. In some ways, I I felt more disconnected. And as a result, I think that's where the the seed of distrust lay in. in, We felt like we were sold a lie. Well, I definitely, I felt sold a lie. And like since, unfortunately for any Facebook employees out there, I'm, I'm not a fan of the organization. I, I, it's one of the organizations that I, I particularly hone in and probably too much unfairly, but um, they do kind of have a, a bit of a, a personal vendetta in my mind. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I know lots of great designers who work at Facebook and Twitter and, Same. and I think they have the best of all intentions, but the problem is there are lots of decisions that are out of their hands yeah. that are getting made. Now, I think in some cases, designers are complicit in bad decisions, right? I don't want to let people off the hook either. But yeah. the fundamental business model is challenging to work with. You know, if engagement is your main driver and profit is your main goal, and you don't explore business models that aren't other than engagement, yeah. then there's only so much you can do within that, right? Absolutely. I think Facebook is probably a really good example of you know design systems and decision systems. You know, yeah. is there even an appetite at uh, executive level? I don't, don't expect anyone to answer this, but in those types of organizations for a human-centered decision system. Yep. And that's where I think that we as designers and product folks and other people who make things have to look at the organization and say, well, no organization is perfect at adhering to its values because values mm-hmm. are usually aspirational. Do we make a sincere effort? And is it just that we aren't quite sure how to get there? Yeah. Those organizations, in my experience, can be helped. Yeah. But when you have organizations where the senior executives repeatedly say, oh, yeah, it's just not pragmatic to actually live up to our values, mm. then that is not going to change until you have a change in executive leadership. Yeah, the they reward that behavior. They're rewarding it. And that's what they're, like you said, they're measuring what they value and what they value is not sometimes what the teams align to. Yeah, exactly. But you know, in my experience, most organizations sincerely do mean to hmm. up to their values, but there are lots of barriers in the way, right? There's, there's old habits, there's assumptions, there's poor systems, there's not understanding how to use metrics. And so in my experience, most organizations can be moved closer to living yeah. up to their values if you give them the right tools. And I think I that's, that's where decision systems play a role, right? Can we frame what we mean by human-centered? Can we agree on a set of ethics that sets boundaries on what we will and won't do? Can we articulate values as team-level principles? And can we put up pairs of metrics so that we're measuring the impact of our decisions? And all of those things, once you have those in place... And you have a diverse set of people and a diverse set of user research input to help you spot the issues that you might not be aware of. That's when you're in a position to make better use of a design system. Yeah, I totally agree. Kim, we're we're coming towards the end of the episode here. And as I mentioned before we we started recording, you've got a bit of a fan club on our Slack community. (laughs) And uh, I say that semi-jokingly, but semi-seriously, like some people were like, oh, I just want to know what she's up to versus is she going to write another book? So that's the first question. Are you going to write another book? Yes. So I have a couple of books in my head that I 
honestly just have to take the time to craft and I have not yeah. the time to do that because I'm I've been busy with interesting client work and photographing wildlife and other things like that um sure but yeah it's overdue I definitely need to do that I'm sure um that was from Larville. Is she going to update her book or does it even need an update? Yeah, I think it does. I think the fundamentals in it are still accurate. I think that the examples and such need an update. And honestly, it's 10 years old. So I've learned a yeah. few things in the meantime that I would like to update it with. And um, yeah, for sure. All right. So we've got another question from the Netherlands. That's Niels Korsten. Niels is a service designer in Coos. And I was wondering if she could talk about the influence of decision frameworks and the adoption or maturity of design within the organization. Is there a link and how do we go about it? That's a big question. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I think if you have an organization that still views design as purely superficial, I think it's going to be difficult to begin having some of these conversations. Mm. But in my experience, I don't think... Working on decision systems really is super linked to design maturity in the organization. Um, I think that it relates much more closely to how well does the organization already align to its own values. That, that in my mind, is the bigger question. I guess you could call it human-centered maturity instead of design maturity, right? So for I have one client where... Design is basically brand new. I mean, they've had a little bit of it internally, but for all practical purposes, they've never done, you know, user research that guides what they're building and that kind of stuff before. But their values are pretty strongly human-centered. And even if they're doing it inexpertly, for the most part, they've been making pretty good decisions, even if the, you know, surface level of the product doesn't look great. They're a relatively easy change compared to some organizations where, Mm, they maybe are not quite as invested in the human-centered values. I find those organizations make slower progress. So I actually think the strength of the human-centered values is the better predictor of how well that organization is going to evolve in a human-centered way, Yeah, kind of independent of the, the design maturity per se. Yeah. I think design maturity can sometimes be interpreted as how quickly they can work to get something out to into development, into the people's hands. It's more of a design as a service, perhaps. Yeah, I think there's, there's a number of interpretations of, of design maturity, right? I like uh, Jared Spool's definition that, you know, design is sort of percolated through all parts of the organization when it's really mature. But, you know, again, that, that word design is so problematic. That doesn't mean that designers are doing all the work. There are not enough of us to do it. Yeah. And that's why I think human-centered maturity might actually be the better metric, which is, does everybody in the organization understand how do you talk to humans and understand their needs to make decisions that aren't about you? <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, again, I've, I'm picking questions out here like a sort of out of a hat. Um I'd love to know what Kim feels about the influence of AI and design systems and how that enhances or degrades the experience of the user. It's a good question. Uh, let's consider the case of YouTube for a second, right? I think everybody has probably heard about this one where the YouTube recommendation algorithm in order to drive engagement yeah. in pushing people toward pretty extreme content at whatever end of the spectrum they're looking at, right? And so if we have an algorithm deciding, oh, what size and color should the button be based on who's clicking it, you know, (laughs) that sort of thing. Um, Then the design system is only going to be as good as the ethics and guidelines that we build into that algorithm, right? So algorithms appear to be amplifying our biases as humans more often than not based on 
how we define them and how we how we apply training data to them. So I think you're going to get some weird effects. Yeah, it's kind of like the Marie Antoinette guillotine. And you've got the designers looking at the rope kind of going, do you think we should make it more ergonomic so the, the blade can fall quicker? <laughs> yeah. You know, just as, as has been true since I first started in design, you know, we don't want to automate the misery. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to automate bias. Yeah, true. I've got another question here from Ruben Sun in New York. And in past encounters, I've noticed Kim focusing a fair bit on team dynamics and building team and organizational culture. I uh, would love to hear about her perspectives on how to best evaluate culture entering into a workplace or building forming culture and organization partnerships in nascent design departments. That's a massive question. Yeah. How am I expecting to get that out in, in under? <laughs> I feel sorry for Kim. You're like that Jerry fella. He just keeps on throwing massive questions to me and expect me to answer them. Let's take one part of that. Yeah, I, I think what I think they're getting at is, um, you know, if you're trying to join an organization or consultant, decide if you want to work with this client, how can you do that quickly, right? Yes. I think there are a couple of approaches that I find really useful. So to my mind, if I were going to do a job interview in an organization, for example, one of the questions I would ask is about how decisions get made. And just as we tend to do in user research, it's better not to ask that question in the abstract but to ask for a case-specific example. So, you know, think about your last project company I'm interviewing with. How did this or that decision get made? How did you decide what to even build? How did you decide which audience to target? Who made that decision and how? What what data influenced that decision or who influenced that decision? Yeah. And you start to get people telling you stories about how decisions get made. That reveals a ton about the culture. Yeah. It reveals a lot about how they make decisions about whose voices are valued, about how effective their processes are. And you can also ask, how did you measure success? How did you know? What metrics were you trying to optimize? Yeah. And did you look at any metrics that might be opposed to that? And that starts to tell you what they value. So culture is, is partly about what people value, and it's partly about the ways in which they make decisions, you know, decision styles, which Lots of different decision styles can be perfectly effective, just some of them may be a better fit or not for you as an individual. So that, in my experience, is the magic question, right? Tell me the story about how decisions got made on this project. Or tell me when you decided not to build something is another way of saying. Uh, yeah, most people can't answer that one in my experience. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, uh, what? We always build or told to build. And I've got one, one last question. We've just got time for one more. And this is, uh, okay, regarding interviewing with Kim, I'd love to hear her opinion on the differences, if any, between UCD, HCD, UX, service design, and design thinking. Well, I guess it depends on who's doing the defining, right, versus how people use the term in reality. Hmm. Look, I think that we get a little bit hung up on language sometimes in a way that's not super helpful, but the underlying meaning of words is is powerful. So. I've been talking about human-centered design as opposed to user-centered because I think a lot of what we design has effects on people who aren't sitting in front of the application, right? So that's why I tend to lean toward human-centered. Yeah. I think if we talk about user experience design, back when I started, interaction design was sort of the new sexy term because we wanted to not be thought of as just interface design yeah. uh, and deeper and richer. So interaction design became the term of art. And then Somebody decided we needed to do a great big land grab and claim the entire user experience. Well, how arrogant is that, right? I think user experience is an important concept that 
users have an experience with all aspects of a system, including customer service and everything else that we don't touch. But claiming that we own that, I think is, let me be blunt, ridiculous, um, because there's no way we can possibly own that because too many other people are making those decisions. So user experience as a concept makes sense. I think as a discipline, it's a little bit silly as a distinction. That may or may not be a popular opinion. Yeah, but, yeah uh, no, absolutely. Uh, and I think when we talk about user experience design or interaction design, that so interaction design to me is a skill set. Mm. Human-centered design is a value system. Mm. And I think that interaction design is not inherently pro-human or not, right? We can use the tools of interaction design and visual design and persuasive writing yeah. for good or evil. And you can look at a million products and, and see ways in which they have been used badly. So that's kind of the distinction I would make, right? Between skill set and value system in a way. Yeah. And service design and design thinking, what's the definition? Well, lots of people would argue that service design, user experience, the same thing. Yeah, yes or no. Yeah, obviously, service design is is bigger than purely interaction design because it does address more aspects of the user experience. I think service design is probably the disciplinary-wise, the closest to looking at the user experience holistically. And I think design thinking, well, it's just one method that is useful in those various places, right? And lots of people criticize design thinking as making it seem like design is easy and something anyone can do, which guess what? Parts of design are something anyone can do. Yeah. And at the same time, it glosses over a lot of the very difficult aspects of system design. So, you know, it's just one flavor. That's great. I know it's one of those questions that's always asked and it's always interesting to get different perspectives on it. Yeah. But, you know, I don't tend to get hung up on the terminology. Honestly, you know how when you're at a party or something and people say, what do you do for a living? Yeah. What do you say? I don't even use the D word anymore. I just say, I help companies get better at humans. I help them make products and services that don't suck for humans. And Usually people respond with, well, thank God somebody's doing that because it needs to be done. <laughs> and then they don't get confused about what I do and it, it works great. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like I, I switch between different uh, explanations of what I do. And in the end, I just say I'm a designer, which maybe I'll stop doing from now on. Take your advice. Yeah. So Kim, how can people find out uh, how to stay in touch with you? Uh, you know, it's probably easiest to find me on Twitter at Kim Goodwin. I am slow at responding to email because my inbox gets overwhelmed. Uh, I'm a little bit better at Twitter, to be honest. Yeah. So I will start there. Great. I'll throw a link to your Twitter in the show notes. And also I'll throw a link to your uh, excellent IXDA talk that you did in Rio in 2018. Uh, it was a really um, fantastic talk and I really enjoyed it. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. Take care. So there you have it. Thanks for listening to Bringing Design Closer. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the This Is Hate CD network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com, where you can also sign up to our newsletter or join our Slack channel where you can connect with other human-centered design practitioners around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>